Welcome to the EAST Career Podcast, brought to you from the EAST Careers and Trauma Committee. I am Stephanie Montgomery from the Medical University of South Carolina. In this session, we are pleased to have Dr. Michael Rotundo here with us to discuss how to become active on the national stage. Dr. Rotundo started his career as Assistant Professor of Surgery at the University of Pennsylvania in the Division of Traumatology and Surgical Critical Care. While at Penn, he rose through the ranks to direct their Level 1 Trauma Center and serve as Vice Chief of Traumatology and Surgical Critical Care. In 1999, Dr. Rotunda moved to East Carolina University and was appointed Vice Chairman in the Department of Surgery at the Brody School of Medicine and Chief of Trauma and Surgical Critical Care at the University Health Systems of Eastern Carolina. And in 2005, he became their Chairman of Surgery. Dr. Rotundo has recently relocated to Rochester, New York, and is now the Chief Executive Officer of the University of Rochester Medical Faculty Group, Senior Associate Dean of Clinical Affairs, Professor of Surgery, and also serves as a faculty in the Division of Trauma in the Department of Surgery. Dr. Rotundo has also been an active member of EAST, serving as a president of our organization. Now let's get started. First, our listeners would like to hear how you have personally achieved your success. Wow, that's a really broad uh, question. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, and and I think um I think if I, you have to really um boil it down to some of the most fundamental uh uh steps, uh it starts out with having great mentorship. Uh I was really fortunate um to to uh, become a fellow at Penn and work with uh, Bill Schwab and and Don Carter during those years. Because those first ten years were incredibly formative on just a whole number of levels, uh, not the least of which, you know, is uh, you know, clinical evolution. You know, trying to become, you know, a competent surgeon, and and beginning to understand um, the the nuances of progressing in academic surgery, what what it really meant to participate in, in creative activity around research and and how to hone one's skills as an educator and how to actually contribute and add value every day. So I think I think the first step is just fantastic mentorship and having being with people that you enjoy being with and and being with people who you respect and who can help bring you through those the the, the complex the complex nature of, of academic medicine and, and in particular in surgery. Do you feel that there is a logical sequence that a surgeon just starting out should follow regarding joining the various trauma organizations? Yeah, I think there absolutely is. I, mean, I think, you know, when I was actively mentoring faculty every single day as a department chairman and as a division chief before that, um, it was clearly, you know, the, the academic advancement and advancement on the national scene is really, there's a formula. It's it's a strategy. It's it's not luck and it's not necessarily brute force. I mean, you clearly clearly have to do your work. There's no question about it. You have to do your part, and, and part of that is just desire. You have to want to do it. But it, there's a clear path, I think. You know, you, you start by really um, joining the organizations which require really only an application and a fee, um, like Society for Critical Care Medicine and like um, the Association for Academic Surgery, like your um, local chapter of the American College of Surgeons, um, like organizations like EAST that embrace um, young people. And, and so the thing to start with, uh, the, the way to start is to start with the things that you can start with. 
So join those organizations that um, that are willingly accept enthusiastic young people. Um, and then when you get there, you you actually have to participate, not just to go to the meetings, and listen to the sessions, but get to know people and get to know the leadership of the organization. And it's it's just like really any other networking that you that that, that you would do. You know, you're you're introducing yourself, you're meeting them at social events, you're you're following up after you after you go to the meeting with uh um you know a brief email. It was so great that our paths you know, you know crossed and I hope to see you again. So that you begin to sort of um uh become visible within the organization. Now that's all well and good, but when you're back home, you actually have to do the work. You have to think about what research that you're doing, either whether it's clinical outcomes research or translational research or bench research, what applies to their organization. How do you have to pace your research so that that you can submit abstracts? The best way to demonstrate commitment to a national organization is to actually submit your work to them and and to offer to do work for them and committee work. So the first step um, really is signing up. The next is becoming visible and volunteering. The next is putting in the work and actually doing the work. And um, over time and persistence, particularly if you've got the mentors who can can help you with that networking, you know it. it and, and you have to have some luck. You know, before you know it, you'll be an active uh, and notable member of some of these some of these various academic societies. Do you think that a surgeon should um, focus their attention on maybe some regional um, organizations or non-trauma organizations also, and then focus like have one area that you focus on more than others, or do you think um, the national organization should be part of it? Well. I, it, we have to make sure that we don't get ahead of ourselves. You know, if you're a new faculty member joining a, um, an academic department, I mean, the first thing that you have to do is establish your local credibility. And, and so anything that I really say is is prefaced by the fact that you've, you've got to make sure that you're doing your work, you're building your foundation at home, becoming a credible surgeon, you know, a good teacher, um, and establishing your research streams. And so that's got to be job one, no matter what. You can't get ahead of yourself and be worrying about climbing the national ladder if you're if you're really not bona fide. It is be, it is about becoming a bona fide academic surgeon, and that takes time. It, while that's going on, you can begin to participate in both local, regional, and local, regional, and national societies, all three. And but you you should think you know you any anything that you do early on, unless you're submitting. Um, work and presenting work at those meetings, it's going to be part of your overall continuing medical education. So you're only going to be able to do so much of it because all of us have limitations on how much we can travel, you know, when, certainly when we're just starting out. And, and even later, uh, if, particularly if you're not actually contributing to the meeting or leading the meeting in some way or, or presenting, and you're just attending. So it's logical to start within your specialty Start local and regional with the logical national societies, and you're going to limit your travel and build, and, and build your base. Over that time course is when you start to sort of pick your head up and become and look around and become noticed and, and to contribute to those societies. So I think it's it's stepwise, and most people will start local and and regional with a with some national presence, and then as their work becomes better known, they're they're traveling more and becoming more active in 
in the organizations in which they're interested. Do you feel that this would be any different for academic surgeons versus those that are just in private practice? Do they have the same opportunities? Yeah, I, I think they're, I think they are different. There, there, there is some overlap, though. You know, so um, the path that I've described really would be more for an academic surgeon. Um, a community-based surgeon really might have very somewhat different interests. You know, it, it, it's a little bit easier for academic surgeons if they're committed to their craft to really stay up with the latest information, you know, because you're immersed all day in teaching and, and creative activity and, you, and you're going to, to to grand rounds and you're interfacing with lots of different disciplines. So you're absorbing an awful lot of information just while you're at work and talking about the literature. Not so really for the community-based surgeon. So there's less of an urge for the academic surgeon to get out to do CME work just to keep up. The academic surgeon on the other, the community-based surgeon on the other hand, really, their CME activity is really serves a very different purpose. That really is the time for most community-based surgeons to try to to keep up with what the what, what's happening in the field and the evolution with evolution that's going on, development in their own specialty. Um, what I've seen over the years is that community-based surgeons are often much more locally active than nationally active. Um, the, there are a couple of exceptions to that. Uh, the American College of Surgeons uh, really, really embraces, as, they, as so they should, community-based surgeons, and there are community-based surgeons that are in the leadership, uh, you know, the leadership ranks of the American College of Surgeons. There are community-based surgeons that are that teach, that are in the ranks of the American Board of Surgery as well. Uh, but not many community-based surgeons that that are in the leadership ranks of, say, something like the society, you know, the the Surgical Infection Society, or 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 the Society for University, University Surgeons. They're just you're not, they're not going to surface in those organizations, nor would they have the interest or the time to do that. So there are some differences. You'll also see that community-based surgeons are oftentimes much more politically active in the field of surgery than academic surgeons. They're right on top of what's happening with healthcare reform. They're very interested in what's, what the local payers are doing. They're very interested in their competition. Not so much for the academic surgeon. So you, you may well see a community-based surgeon who's at that local medical society meeting, and they're they're in a leadership position, and they're and they're stumping for um, whether it's tort reform or or insurance reform or a whole variety of things. So there's some there's some notable differences. How would you prioritize research as being, is it essential to achieving national recognition, or just like you said, you should you can focus on other non-academic type societies? I think it really depends. I mean, I, I think it it's essential if, you know, if you choose to to rise through the ranks of academic surgery at your home institution, and if you choose to pursue leadership opportunities in you know the the old and traditional surgical societies like you know the southern like uh not the southern but like the American Surgical Association um however I, I will say that that you know research now over the last 25 years comes in many forms and there's there's uh, certainly the most academic organizations have become much more liberal in what they consider to be uh, bona fide um, you know contributions to to the literature um, 
so there's been a shift away from, you know, pure basic science research into a translational research, into clinical research, into outcomes research, into population-based research. So I think there's a lot more ways that one can participate in quote-unquote research than even 20, or 20 years ago. <clears throat> if, on the other hand, you are far more interested in being a clinician educator, um, then research becomes far less important. And there are many societies, there, there are a number of important societies in the national scene that will be applicable to that. The Association for Program Directors in Surgery, the, the Association for Surgical Education, another Im important society that embrace people who are not heavily weighted in research, though most people who rise the ranks in those organizations have done some research related to education. Um, and so, uh, But again, that's not even strictly the rule. You can, however, again, assume very high leadership positions within, say, the American College of Surgeons and not have done any research whatsoever. Uh, again, because the the American College of Surgeons, which really represents you know quality in surgery and the House of Surgery, isn't strictly about research and academics. It's about providing outstanding clinical care based on high quality standards. Um, so I think it depends. You know, I think, and that's one of the, that's one of the amazingly great things about about medicine in general, in general, and and surgery in particular. I mean, there are lots of ways that you can rise to leadership positions. There are many avenues that you can take, and there are no really hard and fast rules except for the desire to do it and putting in the work. Dr. Tondo, did you feel that you had any barriers that you had to overcome in order to achieve your national recognition? Hmm, that's a really good question. I mean, uh, let me let me answer with the first thing that that came to mind. You know, it's it's. The, the, the biggest barrier that I, I see that most people have and that I struggle with as well is, is you know, the, the the ability to execute on the work. It's hard work. You know, whether you're, you're trying to complete, uh, you know, a manuscript or prepare for a presentation, whether you've just come off a great uh, a great meeting and, and you've got a to-do list that's waiting for you at home and a to-do list that you generated at the meeting, the hardest thing is getting to the work. You know what Ken Maddox has said to me in 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 one of our discussions a good number of years ago. You know you have to drive the work. Don't let the work drive you. Uh, you have to drive the work. Don't let the work drive you. And and what that means is you know you've you've got to sort of get after it when you have lots to do. You've got to make sure that the portion of your to-do list relative to research, relative to your community, uh, your your committee work for various organizations, that it just doesn't fall to the bottom of your list when you get back home and you're you're making rounds and and you're you have your full slate of cases the next day and you've got a lot to, you've got to make sure that you overcome the barrier of not not getting to that work. So I I think that's that's clearly one that I know that I struggled with over the years and tried to focus on it. Look, I've got things I'm going to get this done, and and I have to get it done on behalf of East. I want to do it on behalf of the Committee on Trauma. I've got work to do for the AAST. I've got a manuscript to get out, and then balance that against all the other things that, and all the other pressures that we have in our jobs and at home as well. I think we can all relate to that. Um, were there any sacrifices that you made uh, to attain a national career? For example, were there personal sacrifices due to traveling um, schedules, or did your local activities have to take a back seat at 
times? How did you do that? Yeah, I think any and all. You know, and I've been very open now, given the fact that I'm now, you know, in my late fifties and looking at this next stage of my career, this, maybe this final stage of my career, looking back at some of the some of the decisions that I made and and some of the sacrifices my family made as well. I mean, there's no question when you're on the road a lot. And when you're taking your Saturdays and Sundays and, and you're, you're doing the, the sort of work that, uh, you know, that, do, you know, performing the work and the style in which we had to perform it, there were definitely personal sacrifices that, that were made. It's time away from family. It's time, time away from, from your, the recreational activities that you like and your hobbies. <clears throat> but I do think that the paradigm is changing. I, I, at least I'd like to think so in, in the department that, in my own department, you know, we um, we really started to think differently about about the workflow and the work patterns. You recognize the value of, of wellness and and keeping in balance, uh, but uh, there, there are clearly personal sacrifices, and your family makes sacrifices as well uh, as you're pursuing these passions. And um, the the one thing you have to be you know, extra careful about. Uh, from a professional standpoint, is, is not letting your work at home slip because you're on the road. Uh, the priority really has to be that that you know you you, you do your job because you you do have a job, and these other things you know we do for as part of our job because they advance our our organizations. Uh, but we also do it hopefully because you love it. You have the desire to do it, and you want to do it. Um, do you have any advice? for how to maintain a presence and also harmony within your group when you have a leader that has so many outside commitments because we obviously want to prevent resentment but we still want each of us to become visible. Yes, yeah, so I want to make sure I understand the question completely. So you have, a let's say, a division chief who's very visible and then you've got a bunch of worker bees that are just really cranking at home and not not – have, they don't have the same opportunities because one or two people are pretty much traveling and doing everything at all times. Yeah, how can you maintain, with given those set of circumstances, how can you, as the leader, maintain a presence because you're gone often and make sure that the people in the group are, you know, have the group mentality and that we can, as a group, we will succeed without having yeah. resentments in there. Well, you know, if if you truly have influence on the on the national level, if you're traveling a lot and you're you do have the opportunity if you're if you're thinking about supporting your faculty, which is as a division chief, it is your primary job. You you can really give your faculty members lots of opportunities. Now, at the end of the day, you know, with all the doors that you open, they have to walk through them. They, I can remember having discussions with faculty after, um, you know, really encouraging them to do their work so that they could pr- promote it, and encouraging them to come out. Uh, to submit that 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 abstract so they can get on the national scene, saying to them, "Look, I, I just want to make sure you still really want this. It, I, I get the feeling that I want it more for you than you want it for you." And so, encouraging them to to walk through those doors sometimes is difficult. So, but number one, create opportunities for other for others, and that's what that's one way that you can do it. You can also make sure as a leader that you're stumping for their for them for compensation and for other benefits that they can get out on the road. Um, the issue about keeping in touch is about, you know, talking to your people and, and calling back home. And then when you come home, make sure that you really are present and doing the things that you that you need to do to support them. 
Um, and I think one thing I found really helpful is is talking about it, saying, look, I've got the following things I'm planning on doing, making sure they know where you are, why you're doing it, soliciting their support so that you can do it, um, and being very open about it. You know, I think talking is very, very important within a division so that everybody can be heard. And if someone feels that level of resentment, they have an opportunity to express it, and you can negotiate around it and see what you can do to mitigate against it in some way. All right, this is changing gears a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you feel that your was the most important achievement that you feel advanced your national career? Well, I mean, I think I was I, – I, I think mine is really obvious, but I'm not sure I would call it an achievement more than just luck. I mean, I, I was in a – you know, I, I had the good fortune of becoming the first fellow in trauma and, and surgical critical care at Penn. So, you know, I was willing to take a risk at a program that was not known and it was, and it was still building. Um, so that was – there was luck in that decision. So I was in an environment which was incredibly creative – uh, with a with a with a small group initially that that grew over time that was was very passionate about trying to make a difference and trying to tr- trying to to bring new things to the field of trauma. Um, uh, the third thing, you know, I was with a, a, a great mentor, Bill Schwab, and we had lots of connections across the country, so we could we could vet and talk about those ideas. And then the last is, you know, I, I sat down and I took a, a large amount of data, tried to make sense of it, and had the good fortune of writing that damage control paper in, in 1992-93. And that, that was a big difference. And there was huge risk in that because uh, attaching your name to that sort of heresy at the time was, um, you know, I, I, you know I, I'm glad I, I didn't know then what I knew now, know now because I might not have been willing to do it. But we were convinced after the work that we collectively did together and the, approaching the, you know, those patients in a different way. And <clears throat> there were conversations that went on with guys like Tom Scalia and John Morris and, and Dave Feliciano and lots of other people that um, in and around the development of that work. <clears throat> so clearly being the right, in the right place at the right time and then putting that together, that paper together and that scheme together after talking to so many people uh, that was that was a turning point for me, one that I never could have expected, but certainly dreamed about. Do you have any specific advice for any of the listeners that will uh, hear this podcast who may be just starting their surgical careers? Specifically, things you think they should do? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, there, there there's all the usual platitudes about working hard and having desire. I mean, you've heard heard me reflect some of those in the in, in the last few minutes. The, the one that I think is most important is really having the courage to look at things that are not working well, that are accepted. You know that you're just, you know that if you just execute it the way you've been taught, it's not going to work out well, but you'll never be criticized. Right? We have lots of things in surgery that are really inadequate for patients. You have to be dissatisfied enough with the with the with the approaches that are out there to ask the question. You know, is this really it? Is this good enough? Is this as good as it can be? You you have to you have to have the courage to to address those problems and say, you know, this 
this is what we've been taught, this is what's in all the books, this is what's in the literature, but it doesn't work well. There's got to be another way. And, and I think that if you have that resolve every day to look for those things that aren't working well for patients and to begin to struggle with those problems, don't just move on to the next thing knowing that you did everything you were taught to do, but rather, you know, look at it long and hard and talk to your colleagues about it. Express your dissatisfaction. Talk about what you might be able to do differently. I think I think that's the advice I would give because it's great for patients and certainly it's great for your career. Okay, so this will be the final question. Um, do you think that you would change anything about your career if you could? Hmm. I don't know. I think that's a tough question. Um, because I think in reality you can't change anything that you did. It just is. Um, but I think I've been really very fortunate. If 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 I'm honest to the question, um, it would be around. It would be really around more balance in life. You know, pretty. I was pretty driven early on and very very focused, and and focused really on trying to make that difference, trying to find that thing that that would be important. For patients every single day, having a little more, more balance, staying a little more healthy, spending a little more time at home—I think those are the things. With honest, in all honesty, that's probably what I would do differently. Well, on behalf of the East Careers and Trauma Committee, I would like to thank you, Dr. Rotundo, for taking time to speak with us today. And I am Stephanie Montgomery, and I hope you enjoyed the program. When you find a moment of time, please visit the EAST website at www.east.org for more EAST career podcasts and other valuable information. Thank you. One question to follow up on. When you do have a limited budget when you're starting out and you say, you know, you have, you know, $1,000 of CME money, how is it best spent? You know, it depends on how it's structured, Nicole. I mean, if... If you have a thousand dollars to spend on CME, but your chairman will let you travel every time you, you know, either have a committee meeting or you submit a paper that's accepted, then, you know, spend your thousand dollars on true CME early on. Right. Um, if you only have a thousand dollars in total, you know, that makes it a little bit more difficult. You know, try to submit as many things as you can. So, I think I think the, the things to think about are those uh, organizations where. Um, you know, you're, they're specialty specific and they embrace young people. You know, so if you're, if you have a thousand dollars to spend and you decide you're going to go to the American Surgical for your one meeting a year, you're not going to get an awful lot out of that. Those meetings are political, the papers are good, but unless you have somebody who's dragging you around by the arm, introducing you to everybody, you're not going to get much out of it. You'd be much better off going to East and, 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 in, and networking there we're going to SCCM and actually learning a whole series of things related to, you know, ventilator-associated pneumonia or things that you otherwise would not be studying and learning about. So I think you've got to pick your shots, and that changes as time goes on. But the best, the best alchemy there is, you know, is 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 to, you know turning turning what we used to say posted stamps into airline tickets. Send in those abstracts. You know, hit hit the send button as often as you can, and that'll those will become airline tickets because you'll be at the podium and you'll be presenting. So with um, with that, I think sometimes you know as you've gotten started in organizations and you have ones that you know maybe you feel you know now you're a member of twelve different things. How many is too many? 
Yeah. You know, so this has changed. I think this has changed over the last 20 years. I mean, I, each one of those was a notch, you know, a, a notch in the belt, right? Or, right. you know, get as many of those as you could. Now I think you have to pick and choose a little more carefully. And I think there are some streams that you, you have to think about. So I've, I've mentioned, you know, that the Association for Academic Surgery really can lead to the Society for University Surgery, which can be an avenue to the American Surgical. So those three, in my mind, sort of go together. And so that's that's a nice a nice bundle. Another bundle would be SCCM, um, East, and AAST, and you sprinkle in the College of Surgeons. And so if you're a trauma and critical care surgeon and you've got those things in there, and when I say sprinkle in the College of Surgeons, I mean you know your local chapter. And if you're in the southeast, you know the southeastern surgical. If you're in the southwest, you go to that meeting. If you're in the central, you go to that meeting. Those three sort of packages, you know, the college, the, the trauma bundle, if you will, or acute care surgery bundle, and the American the American surgery bundle would would be three that sort of makes sense. Um, when you start getting into, if you're a colorectal surgeon, it changes a little bit. If you're, you know, if you're a hepatobiliary surgeon, it changes a little bit. But there are these bundles that exist, and I think I would stick to the bundles.